at my welcome to all of you tuning in today to this uh, live stream broadcast. And I invite you to turn, uh, if you um, would, to the first letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his young protege, Timothy. We're going to be looking at chapter 5, and we continue to make our way through this series, um, this letter under the banner of the economy of God. When when our family, when we, uh, my wife and I bought our first house, it was 27 years ago this summer, uh, we got one of those plaques that um, we hung over the dining room table uh, that had a list of family rules. It said things like, in this house we say, I'm sorry, in this house we forgive, in this house if you open it, you close it. If you took it out, you put it away. Um, there was something like maybe, I don't know, 10 or 15 household rules. I remember a friend coming over for dinner one night, and uh, they had four boys, and he took one look at that plaque, and he said, is that all the rules you have? In our house, we need a lot more rules than that. And uh, According to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, the reason Paul wrote this letter to Timothy is so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. We're reading through the household rules of the church. And in our text for today, Paul drops down into some of the details of fitting behavior in God's family. What's remarkable about this text is that its focus, for the, for the greater part, I mean, probably 14 out of the 16 verses, has to do with widows. Emmaus Road Church has a lot of young people. Um, I cannot think, uh, as I go through our membership in my mind, I cannot think of one widow. But there are quite a number of singles, and there are some who were once married that are now single again. And uh, nevertheless, there is a claim in this passage on each and every one of us who professes Jesus as Savior and Lord. So it's a very relevant text. I want to invite you to follow along as I read 1 Timothy chapter 5 verses 1 through 16. And uh, if you are able, as an expression of our regard, our honoring of God's word to us. I'd invite you to stand um, and follow along. The Apostle Paul says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day 
But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children and has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. This is God's holy, authoritative, healing, life-giving, soul-restoring word. Let's, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we understand that you communicated this text, these words, this notion, these principles, the details here of your household rules to the Apostle Paul for a purpose, to an end, that you would get glory, that you would be honored, but that your people the people of your household would experience your love. They would experience your love as it flows, as it springs from the hearts of the rest of your people. God, do this. Let there be among us pure hearts, good consciences, sincere faith, and out of that soil, let love abound and let us know the joy of hearing your voice and receiving your word. We need your spirit to accomplish that among us. So we, we welcome your work here now in Jesus' name. Amen. And wherever you are, you may be seated. Paul addresses matters in this text that... Um, provoke many of the values championed by the culture in which we live today. There is something here 
uh, to potentially challenge anyone, including those who profess faith in Jesus. Listen again to verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. This this is principally how we are to behave in the church. We respect those who are older and wiser than we are. We treat those who are younger, not with condescension, but as equals. Men and boys relate to women and girls in the church as sisters in all purity. In, in God's economy, there are only two genders, not five, 50, 100, males and females, brothers, sisters, spiritual mothers, spiritual fathers. It sounds like a family, doesn't it? And that's because the church is a family. Loved ones, God does not intend for the church to simply be a collection of strangers to one another. God does not intend the church to be simply a place that you go. It's not simply, and this is to quote a a wise friend of mine, a cultural routine. Church, the household of God, is a supernatural reality. One reason why worshiping virtually these last eight weeks feels so wonky to us is because healthy families don't operate that way. We gather. Families gather. God's family gathers. And one thing I pray might be a profoundly valuable outcome of our weeks of this kind of social distancing as a church is that we may recognize and we would resist a very real temptation to minimize what we are as the household of God. In the culture in which we live today, the wonder of the very nature of the local church is virtually gone. Even in the wider church itself, much of the wonder of what we are as the church is gone. Listen to the Apostle Paul's words to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. He writes, The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us, get this, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. There are quite a number of adopted sons and daughters in the families of Emmaus Road Church. And if you kids, you adopted sons and daughters, are watching this live stream, let me remind you specifically, your adoptive parents paid an incredible price to make you their sons and daughters. And to all of you who profess faith, never, ever forget that Jesus' bloody cross is the legal entry point into God's family. 
What a price that Jesus paid to adopt us. And who would want to cheapen that by minimizing the local church, by hopping from one church to another, never really plugged in, never engaging anywhere? Is that the way families operate? We get, we get tired of one family or the family lo- our family loses its cool vibe or we get fed up. We just move on to another family. Families do not work that way. Families endure the good and the bad and the ugly. We sacrifice our, our preferences, the non-negotiable preferences at times for the well-being of the family's well-being. That's what families do. Of all the metaphors in the New Testament for the church, the metaphor of family is used more often than any other. I think that's significant. God is our father. We are his sons and daughters. We live life together like a family. We care for one another like a family. We recreate and play together like a family. And when there are needs, we share like a family. And what unites us as a family is Christ. And God's word tells us that the blood-bought basis for being family together in Christ is more important, more significant than any blood relationship we have with any family relative. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's not to demean or to devalue the natural family. Our natural families are massively important to God. But I do mean to highlight the significance of the church family. According to 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 16, we have, as believers in Jesus, a family bond that then is the basis for the way that we communicate with one another, the way we talk with one another, the way we care for one another, for the fellowship that we have with one another as a family. And what a family bond it is. Loved ones, we share the same father in heaven, the Father who sent His Son to drink the cup of His just wrath so that we wouldn't have to. We share the same Savior, the same brother, our Lord Jesus, who drank that cup willingly and bought us with His blood. We share the same empowering, infilling, sanctifying, truth-illuminating Holy Spirit. We bear the same name, Christian. Brothers and sisters, that bond unites us in a relationship like no other. And it's because it is a relationship like no other. Just think think about the uniqueness of our relationships with one another in the church like this. The the relationship that we have with one another as a church family is, is a more enduring relationship than even the relationship between a husband and a wife. Now, of course, the relationship between a husband and a wife, that's the natural building block of, of the family, right? The relationship between husband and wife is massively significant in God's purpose in this world. Every husband and wife together are intended by God to be this walking, talking, 
parable of Christ and his joyfully submissive and adoring bride, the church. Marriage is a picture of the gospel for all the world to see. That's huge. But now listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 20, verses 34 and 35. He says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. You understand what Jesus means? He means that if you are a Christian, your husband or your wife will not always be your husband or your wife. Why? Because one day, you will be married to your husband Jesus and you will have no need for another spouse. There will be no need for this parable that marriage is in this world, in this time, because then in that time, that sphere, in heaven, there will be the real thing. And you know what else? We will always be brothers and sisters in Christ forever. That is a durable relationship like nothing this world understands. That is the ultimate family relationship. And and your kids, if they have trusted Christ, will have no need for a mom and dad in heaven. They will be with their heavenly father, and they will be married to the same spouse that you are, but they will always be, God willing, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus makes the most remarkable statement in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verses 31 to 35. Here's the situation. It says, his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to Jesus, and they called to him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Isn't that a radical redefinition of what family really means. Jesus introduces a notion of family that supersedes the natural family. He introduces the church as family. And of course, Jesus is minimizing the importance of our natural families. He cared deeply for his own family. Jesus fulfilled the command to honor his father and his mother, and he did it perfectly. While he was agonizing, through inconceivable suffering on the cross, Jesus, his thoughts turned to his own widowed mother, earthly mother, and he provided for her. The, the, the natural family is hugely significant, but our families do not have priority over God's family. That's what Jesus is teaching in Mark 3, 31 to 35. My family is those brothers and sisters who joyfully trust and obey 
gods. And the, the, the radical effect of Jesus' life and Jesus' death is, is relations that transcend the natural family. The relationships we share in Christ, in this church, Emmaus Road Church family, transcend our relationships with our natural families. Now, if our natural families are also Christians, then there's this double blessing. The family under God, under God is so important, but mothers and fathers, please listen. It is our responsibility to build our families, our natural families, into the church. And not just, not isolate our families from the church or involve our families minimally in the church. One commentator writes, the natural family must be planted firmly into the soil of the church family in order to bear the fruit it was created by God to bear. There's, there's no casual members of a family, right? Being a family member implies a mutual commitment and a love for for mother, father, brother, sister. When we were born into the human race, God didn't just say, okay, you've been born into this family over here of the human race. Somebody will take care of you. No, God placed us providentially into a particular family populated by particular people located in a particular place. And, and we've, we've gotten to know these particular people pretty well. And we share a particular commitment and love and bond. A similar thing happened when we came to know and trust Jesus Christ. We became members of his larger family and God placed us into smaller families populated by particular people located in a particular place, a people with whom we share a particular commitment and love as members of the same local church. In God's economy, loving, committed relationships are experienced in the context of the local church. And it's meant by God to be a precious thing, a very precious thing. And yet it is so, so, so easily just taken for granted. Now, I take the time to highlight the significance of the church based on 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, because it lays necessary groundwork for making any sense of the household rules being applied to a, a specific group in the church in Ephesus to whom Paul is addressing. And that group was single women. More specifically, single widowed women. Now, if you don't happen to be a single widowed woman, please don't turn off the live stream just yet. The, the application of the economy of God here is relevant for every one of us. According to 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 8, there, there was a kind of a two-sided problem in the church of Ephesus. On the one hand, there were widows, that is, there were 
just just think single women for for the time being. There were there were single women who were not being adequately cared for by the church. And then on the other hand, there were widows again, think single women now, who were, were being cared for by the church, who should not have been being cared for by the church. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But then in verse 9, there's yet another problem. Young widows, young single women, had bought in to this false teaching. It was referred to in chapter 4, verse 3, that marriage is bad. Rather than seeing marriage and child-rearing and the management of a household as being a, an honorable, high, holy calling, they saw it as limiting, restrictive, beneath them. And so in accordance with the false teaching of the day, they were avoiding marriage. And these single women were also giving in to a temptation, a temptation that every one of us experienced. That's why this is relevant for everybody. They were giving into the temptation of idleness. They just sat around doing nothing productive except gossiping and complaining and talking about people and things they shouldn't talk about. You just, I, I've seen about a minute and a half of this because that's about all I could handle. But, but just think real housewives of Beverly Hills. That, that, that's, that's a picture here, okay? And, and because of that kind of thing, they had become a very problematic group in the church. And Paul says, this is serious, he says they had strayed after Satan. It's a demonic lie. But there was yet another group of widows, <laughs> single women in the church, and they're referred to in verse 9. So look at verse Look at verses 9 and 10. Here's what Paul says. Let a widow be enrolled. Now, these are not necessarily single women who are enrolling or applying to receive some benevolent financial support from the church. I'm sure some may have been receiving support financially from the church, but this, this enrollment is different than that. It, it's referring to a particular way of serving in their local church. They're putting themselves forward to serve, and, and so what follows then is a list of qualifications for these so-called serving widows. It's, it's actually the same word that's translated deaconess. So let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age. She had to be 60 and over to serve in this capacity. Having been the wife of one husband, has to, be, has to have a track record of faithfulness, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. According to church history, there were actually orders of widows, single women. They were organized to serve in local churches. And these women gave themselves to helping the elders and the deacons of the church. And the, the main thing is that they were just exemplary servants in the life of the church and to the people of the church. And, and as such, they gave themselves to, to prayer and to intercession. They cared for the sick. They cared for orphans. They visited those who were in prison. They helped newly 
converted women prepare for baptism and by teaching them the values and commitments of biblical womanhood. So just imagine the impact of a, of a group of women like that. And imagine the amazing blessing that that would be to the, to the family of God. And further, imagine what an effective, this is, I think, the powerful thing here. Imagine what an effective countermeasure it would be for fighting this temptation to idleness and gossip and other hurtful and destructive speech. Aren't those things that all of us are tempted to? Married men and married women are tempted that way. Young people, old people are tempted that way. I know I am tempted, regularly tempted, just killing time, wasting time on unproductive, mindless activity, as well as tempted to say things that I shouldn't say. I say them to people I shouldn't say them to. But I think, I think this particular temptation, it's, it's especially strong towards young people. It was for the young women of Ephesus. But there's a remedy. There's a remedy for this temptation of wasting time and talking about other people. And that remedy is praying for other people, jumping in and serving other people, caring for other people, especially those who are suffering or sick or incapacitated, showing them kindness with generous-hearted hospitality. Whoa! If you are widowed, listening to this live stream, if you are divorced and listening to this live stream, if you've been abandoned and are single, again, not by choice, if you are not married, if you're young or you're old, listen, this text should assure you that you matter to the life of this church. If, if you were not here, if you were not part of the Emmaus Road family, this church would be incomplete. If you are a living stone, but you are not engaged in the life in, this, uh, in the ministry of, and community of this church, listen, the, the structural integrity of the spiritual house is compromised. Please do not underestimate your the significance of your contribution if you're by yourself. You are not less important you are not a less necessary member of this family. You are the family. Now again, part of the problem in the Ephesian church was that, that they were caring for some. They were supporting some widows that they should not have been caring for and supporting. That sounds really weird, doesn't it? But, but isn't, isn't that what church members should do? Um, well, of course it's what church members should do. We, we, we should care for people, all quality people. But in this case, and I think in our case today, there are qualifications. The Bible distinguishes need. And the reality is that local churches have limited resources. 
And that's why it's up to the elders and the deacons to steward those limited resources wisely. And what Paul's saying here is that if these widows had Christian children or Christian grandchildren with the resources to provide for them, well, then it's unnecessary for the church to be carrying the weight of all that. Verse 16, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Some of you who are, you, you may be in a season of life now, or inevitably you probably will be someday, you'll be caring for aging parents. I've been there, and I've done that, and I know that it takes strength. If that's you or will be you, be strengthened by 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 4. It says, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them, let those children, let those grandchildren first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. Notice, caring for aging parents, it is an expression of godliness. That is, it is imitative of the way that God is toward his family members. And, and, and here's where we get the strength, I think, to do this. Recognize it as an opportunity to make some return to them. This is an, an occasion to consider all the ways. Just remember all the ways. Be mindful of all the ways our parents served us, supported us, supplied for our needs. This is a time and a way to repay them, not begrudgingly, but joyfully. That's important because for most of us, I, I realize that some, some did not have a good experience with their, their family members and their parents. Parents, but but I, I I think I speak for many when I say my parents did not feed me, they did not love me, they did not hold me, they did not stay up at night with me, they didn't get up in the middle of the night when I'm sick, they, they didn't weep with me in my sorrows, they didn't celebrate all the things that were important in my life, they didn't do that begrudgingly. They did it because they loved me and they would make almost any sacrifice they could to see that I had everything I needed to be happy and successful and a well-grounded person. I think most of you identify with that. Of course, there are exceptions. Maybe you weren't loved and cared for all that well, but I realize that might make a command like this hard. But it is a way, even if it's hard, it is a way to trust God, Dr. God, and obey his prescription to honor your mother and your father. A command, by the way, that has no qualifications. You don't honor your father and mother if they were a good father and mother. It's a command that doesn't have any expiration date, which means you don't stop honoring your parents once you move out. And here's the second thing that I think that is strengthening. It, it's pleasing in the sight of God. It, it is hard to care for aging parents. 
I, I remember saying to my sister at one point, man, there is just no school for this. But when you do care for them, feel God's pleasure. God is happy. It's the very nature of Christ to care for those who need care. Express mercy to those who need mercy. Help those who need help. Paul's really strong in this. Listen to verse 5-8. He says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You get that? Even unbelieving, Christless, agnostic, nihilistic, atheistic people, they know instinctively that it's right to care for their family. It doesn't require regeneration, new birth, to feel the rightness of it. To not care is anti-Christian. And though we may not have any true widows in our church, true widows, there are still plenty of needs. And we endure trials and chronic illnesses and pain and pandemics and unemployment and dozens and dozens of other weighty burdens. And God means for us to lean into them with generous-hearted care. It is the character of a church that is functioning like a family. We'll never be flawless, of course, in our expressions of life as a spiritual family. There's going to be seasons of, of really high need. And there's going to be seasons where it's, you know, it's easy. There may even come a day when widows are a significant part of the demographic of this church. But until that day... Let us trust our Heavenly Father and keep the rules of his house. Let's pray. And so once again, Lord, we, we understand, according to the one you inspired to write these words, the aim of it all is love, discernible love, practical love, visible love. But that love will not be practical and visible and manifest apart from pure hearts and good consciences and sincere faith. And so we welcome you, Lord, to bring the powerful, life-changing application of the gospel to bear upon us. We want to sing it again. We proclaim preach it to ourselves again and proclaim it for all to hear. Oh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions so that we are able then out of the fullness of what you've done in us to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by you, our Heavenly Father. May this be so in Jesus' name. Amen.